If you're, if you're just really wanting to warm a pastor's heart and get him encouraged and make him feel like he's doing even the least little bit right, just tell the pastor that you, you love Jesus. You love Jesus more for being here and amongst Christ's people, and you love Christ's people more from your time with them. You are grateful for the way that God is building up His church. If you want to encourage a pastor, that's a great way to do it. But as we say that, we want to make sure that we understand exactly what it is that we're getting at. What is the church? Well, that's exactly the reason that we've taken a break in our churchology series to think through what the nature of the local church is so that when we say that, we can say it meaningfully. And so we've been thinking about that for the past weeks, and this morning we're moving on from that first ordinance of baptism uh, to that second ordinance of communion. Those are the two ordinances of the church, and we're going to be thinking about communion today. Now, as I said last week, baptism has historically been understood, and it's understood in the Scriptures as that initiation uh, sort of oath sign where you are picturing a declaration of the nature of the fact that you really believe that you have been united with Christ and His people. Well, communion is uh, that ordinance that we've been given that shows a continual relationship with the Lord and His people that we take week by week where the Lord encourages us about the nature of who we are, our identity. And it also declares to the world who we are as a people. Now, as you know, in our statement of faith, we've been talking a little bit about uh, what we believe as a people about communion. And we're not trying to say all that we believe, but at least what we believe. And here's what our proposed uh, statement of faith says today uh, online. It says this, We believe baptized believers take part in communion with Christ and one another by eating the bread and drinking the cup in commemoration of their Savior's death on their behalf and the right relationship with God and faithful fellowship with other believers. So as we think about that, you see that there are really two things that are spoken of there. A relationship with God and relationship with others. I just want you to know that as a pastor, as we're talking about these things, we are immediately, I think, um, we sense and feel the weight of responsibility that God has called us to. In fact, I'm constantly reminded of Hebrews 13, 17, where we are told that elders are one day going to have to give an account. Your leaders will have to give an account for the way that they care for your souls. And so when we think about these kinds of issues like preaching and the ordinances, we recognize that one day, day, we, unlike other individual Christians, will uniquely have to give an account for the way that we observe these things. You know, my first two years here at Trinity... Um, I looked at communion as a a new young lead pastor, and I I noticed a number of things uh, were happening, and uh, not always like in real time, like later I would understand what was going on. So uh, I remember one time we had a a couple of men who, at that time we had two services, and so uh, in between services they they would smoke pot, and then they would also take communion like before and after. So they, they sort of took it before, and then, and then afterwards they would take it twice. I know others who would take communion believing that both Jesus and Krishna was God. Some were involved in open, unrepentant sexual sin, and some practiced even witchcraft. There were children who took uh, communion without being baptized or professing Christ. And as I say that, I want to say that not to say that this couldn't happen today. I think those are the kinds of things that could happen in any church. But what I, I do believe is, is that when I read the Scripture, and the kind of Scripture that we're going to read this morning in 1 Corinthians 11, what I do find is is that pastors and leaders have an obligation from God to make sure that we are communicating clearly what it is that is expected of the people of God. And what communion means. What, What does it mean to take communion? And here's what I would say. 
I would say that taking communion is a glorious benefit that God has given to His people that we want to think more about. We want to appreciate more so that we can celebrate in the ways that God has created us to celebrate it. Now, I think this is particularly important in our particular context. As you know, we live in a postmodern world. By that, I mean that we have decided that truth is really something that you kind of decide in your own heart. Now, maybe you've seen this practiced yourself in the world at large. Uh, you know, I, my sons go to a school that's a really great school, and, and, and we've noticed that there are some kids who actually have taken on uh, this identity of gender creative, which basically means that when you wake up in the morning, you can just kind of decide what gender you are. It's really fluid, and it changes, and, it, and, and parents actually are celebrating this kind of thing. Now, I know that probably many of you are going like, that sounds super strange. Some of you are going like, what's the problem? But I would just say that the Bible seems to say that like the way that he created us embodied beings actually means something. And not only that, I think that there are ways in which that kind of philosophy can seep into the way that we view ourselves as Christians, right? So that we can start to say that I am a Christian and I am a Christian based on my own personal definition that I have created in my, only, my own little small sector of creation. And that picture of Christianity that I have when I am coming to meet with the people of God and telling others that I'm a Christian might not be anything near the biblical picture that we read about in the Bible. So when we are thinking about Christianity, we have to, as pastors and as a church, think about what is the most loving way that we can actually help people understand what it really means to be a believer. You know, in, in our context right now, there is um, a, a main doctrine that is, that is being expressed that you might not have noticed, and it's this. The main doctrine is this. We value above all else as the chief good self-expression, whatever that is. That's the chief doctrine. And there's one rule in, that, in, in our culture, and that's this. Whatever you do, do not be intolerant towards whatever belief someone else has, unless it's the Bible, and then you can just go whack a mole on it. Right? I mean, like, as long as it's not the Bible, like, we can be, like, tolerant all day long. But if we start to believe that we have a creator God who has spoken into creation and has authority over us and has made us with meaning, then, then in that place, the world says, we're not going to have it. So I think as a culture, we need to recognize that we as a church need to think carefully about how to express Love, and not just the kind of tolerant love that the world speaks about, but that better kind of love, the biblical love that points back to God who is love. And that's what we want to be thinking about as we're thinking about communion. See, the church invites all Christians to take communion. Uh, when they do that, though, is it loving to be tolerant of everyone's own definite definition of Christianity? Is that loving them well? Is that good shepherding? Well, as a pastor, I would say, you know, I think it's important what I do with this and what we do with this because I'm going to have to give an account before Almighty Jesus one day. But fortunately, I believe that Paul actually answers some of these philosophical and theological questions that are so important for us today in 1 Corinthians 11. In other words, Paul actually does have the answers. It's not like this is a new situation that we're left to our own on. God has spoken to this. In fact, if you look in 1 Corinthians as a book overall, that's where we're going to be today. You'll notice that this book is really pointing to the way in which the unity and simplicity of God, not that God's simple, because right, God's not simple or easy, but in the sense that He's not a God of parts. He's not divided against Himself. He is one God who is united in all of His persons, all three. 
But that, that the unity and simplicity of God, 1 Corinthians says, should express itself in the unity of Christians with one another. In other words, as God is united, we as a people should be united, which expresses that we are reflecting the glory of God into creation. And because the triune God is not divided, His people shouldn't be divided either. I think 1 Corinthians is hitting this again and again. But catch this. Though this book is all about unity, it is fascinating that there is a problem. See, 1 Corinthians reveals that he is speaking to, Paul is speaking to a local church that is divided over all kinds of things. In fact, you might say that if there's anything to be divided over, they found a way to be divided over it, right? I mean, they're divided over their favorite preachers. They are divided over who baptized them. They are divided over uh, all sorts of things as you read on. You'll find that as they continue, they talk about ways that they have been divided over legal disputes, marital relations, and even whether or not that they should be married whether to eat food sacrificed to idols, even their own consciences are divided against themselves. And even the spiritual gifts that are from the one true God are used as an occasion to fight. And see, Paul, throughout the book, argues for unity. But don't miss this. Here's, here's what I find fascinating about this book. As Paul argues against a variety of divisions, there is actually one division that he promotes. A godlike unity through he is actually promoting a kind of division that brings about the unity of the church. See, Paul's pursuit of unity is laced with one necessary and clearly divine division that he demands. And it's found in 1 Corinthians 2, 14-15, where he says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The spiritual person judges all things. Uh, so we see there, but we also see, I think it clarified a little more when you get to 1 Corinthians 5, where you find this man who is living in a, a relationship with his father's mother in such a way that even the Corinthians who are not known as being like a morally strict people are going, we don't even do that. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's gross. And yet there what we find is, is that Paul looks at it and says what? Does he say prize unity at all costs and celebrate the self-expression of this brother? Well, no. He says not even to eat with such a one. Now, come in close. Here's why I spent so much time on this. See, the conversation over unity and division at the communion table is actually an ancient discussion that Paul himself, an apostle, speaks into in 1 Corinthians 11. And we're going to see that our communion should actually display unity with Christ and his people and a distinction from the world. That's what communion ought to do. And so we're going to look at that in a few ways. But first, look with me at verses 17 to 22 where we're going to find that divisions in the church, divisions in the church don't reflect the unity of God and His people. Divisions in the church don't reflect the unity of God and His people. Now, as you're looking there, Paul, you'll remember, he just commended the church for keeping the traditions that they received in corporate worship. That's in the first part of chapter 11. But here, you'll notice in these verses, in verse 17, he's not commending them. In fact, he says... When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Now, I want you to imagine the scenario. We're gathering here Sunday morning, and all of a sudden, somebody very significant to you shows up. I don't know who that is. Maybe that's Charles Stanley, or maybe that's, you know, I don't know, Billy Graham, uh, John Piper. Somebody shows up who really means a lot to you, and he looks around, and after the service, you run up to him, and you're like, what did you think? And he looks at you, and he says, 
you know, I think it'd be better if y'all just didn't do this anymore. Like, this is really, like, actually worse for the gospel than better. In fact, I think it actually would make the gospel more beautiful if y'all just wouldn't ever do this again. Do you think that would be encouraging? I think I would cry, right? And that's exactly the kind of thing that happens here, except, by the way, he's not talking about Billy Graham, he's talking about an Apostle Paul. And so here, just imagine this. He comes in in verses 18 to 22. And catch what the word of the Lord says about why he says that it was better that they not meet. Here's what he says. He says in verse 18, For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions amongst you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And when you look at a text like this, you'll you'll notice that Paul is extremely worked up. And what is it that he's so worked up about? Well, you'll notice that when they come together as a church, they should evidence the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for in John 17 that we read earlier this morning, that kind of unity where Jesus is one with the Father and He asks that they too might be one with Him. But they show off in their local church divisions in verse 18. Factions in verse 19. They are a divided people. So that they look more natural than spiritual in the way that they live. See, churches tended in those days to meet in local homes of wealthier Christians. And Acts 27 tells us that that usually happened on Sundays. And so they would meet and they would uh, open the Word of God. They would hear the preaching of the Word and they would practice baptism and communion. And we find here that there is a specific kind of struggle that is going on in the church that was dealing with this particular cultural context. We might miss it if we don't understand it. Well, Jerome Murphy O'Connor explains this kind of context, and he actually talks about how even the architecture of the homes described a kind of division that was happening amongst people in the church. So he says that Roman architecture actually reflected their hierarchical structure. So a host would have usually been a wealthier member of the church, and he would have invited likely here wealthier members, more powerful or influential members, to sit in the main dining area where they would have the best food and the best wine. It was the center of the party, right? And then those who were not as well off would actually sit in the outer rooms. And they would uh, sit outside, some of them, and they would have the lesser food, maybe even the scraps that would fall from their table. See, the church meeting in a home in the Roman colony of Corinth looked more like Rome than heaven. There was a division. Their gatherings and communion were neither salt nor light. They did not demonstrate a sacrificial Christ-like love for one another like Jesus commanded in John 13. That, that kind of love that's evangelistic, that shows that, that uh, all men, that they are His disciples. But instead, when they gather, this is the picture. The wealthy folks would show up early, they would eat up all the food and get drunk. And that's why Paul asks, do you despise the church of God? 
and humiliate those who have nothing in verse 22? So what's the problem? See, this local church reflects a natural division around social class, money, ethnicity, all kinds of things that the world divides over, rather than a distinct unity with Christ and one another. And the problem with their communion here, please don't miss it, it is horizontal. Do you see it? It is a a problem with relationships with people around them before they see that it is a a problem with them and God. So as they look around, they recognize that there is something going on. Paul says there's something between you here. And here's the vertical consequence in verse 20. Do you see it? There's a vertical consequence to this horizontal problem. It's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Now let me point out the obvious here. There are a number of obvious things. But first, notice that individuals think they are taking communion, and Paul says they are not. Do you see that? Like, they're coming, and they're thinking, we are taking of the body and blood of Jesus. And he says, no, I've I've looked at your relationships. That's not the body and blood of Jesus that you're taking. Because if you really were taking of the body and blood of Jesus, it would shape the way that you love one another. You would look different. The gospel would actually breathe life into you. It would transform you. It would shape you. It would identify you as distinct and different from the world. But it hasn't done that. So whatever it is that you're taking is not that thing that I've been taking. Here we find that their horizontal relationships with other church members disrupt their vertical relationship with God. So Paul, he doesn't value self-expression above all else. They think themselves to be Christians, and Paul is not scared to say, I don't think that your relationship looks like one who is a Christ follower. But second, their horizontal relationships with other church members disrupt their vertical relationship with God. Now this isn't just a meal, I think, here that we find. It's not just a meal between me and God. I know that many of us have believed it as that. But here it's very clear that it is a meal between a we and God. And that actually our relationships with one another speak life into and meaning into what it is that we're doing at the communion table. So communion is about relationships with others. You remember that Paul just said in 1 Corinthians 10, 17. 1 Corinthians 10, 17, he says this, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. So there's a unity of the body that is being pictured in communion. An embodied unity of the local church points to the spiritual unity with God. Now, this isn't news, though. We know that John speaks to this in 1 John 4.20, when he says that if you say that you love God and you hate your brother, he's a liar. Because he who does not love his brother whom he has seen with his eyes cannot love a God who he has not seen yet. So when you take communion, I think it's a good thing to ask yourself, do you consider if you are promoting unity or division with your words and life in the body. That's one thing you should be thinking about when you take, about, when you take communion. Am I promoting unity here, or am I actually saying something that's not true about who God is, who is the one true God? But there's a, a, a third quick thing that we learn from this section. That's this. As, Jim, as, John, uh, or as Jim Hamilton says, Jim Hamilton says this, the Lord's Supper is an identity-shaping proclamation of the gospel. Don't you like that? It's an identity-shaping proclamation of the gospel. As we practice it, it shapes us. So in communion, members of the church declare solidarity with the work of Christ and one another in Christ as we partake of that communion. See, we we leave earthly status markers as we come to Christ's table. We, We don't bring, as it were, like our our status markers of like where I went to college or whether I went to college 
or what sport I played, whether I sat the bench or was like the quarterback, whether I won like a state championship or whether or not I like indie music. We don't bring those things to the table and say, here's my punch card and you can decide where's best for me to sit. Now, when we come to the communion table, we come based solely on the work of Christ and what he has done in us. And the question is, are you part of the family or not? Not like what degree or what status you have here, but rather, who is it that we have truly put our faith in and who are God's people? Now catch what Paul does here. He points a sin-sick church who look more divided than united to what is the medicine for what ails them. He points them to the gospel in verses 23 to 26. Did you see this? Look, Look at verses 23 to 26. Here we see, second, that communion celebrates God's new people looking as united as their God. Communion is celebrating the fact that God's new covenant people look as united as their God does. Here's what he says in verses 23 to 26. He says this, For, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now you'll notice here that Paul is actually delivering what he received from Jesus himself. And that's this, that the the Lord's Supper is grounded in the Last Supper, which was a Passover meal. So let me just... Like, think about this visually, right? You've got the Lord's Supper, which is what we're taking today, is grounded in the Last Supper, that meal that Christ took with His disciples before His death, which is actually going back to finding its meaning in the Passover meal that Jews took to celebrate the Passover event. And so He's, he's sort of tracing the, the, the trail of breadcrumbs back to the, the Passover, What we find here is that Jews, as you know, annually celebrated God redeeming them out of slavery in Egypt by sending His Spirit to kill every firstborn child in a home that did not cover their doorpost in the blood of a lamb. And the Spirit passed over those children that that covered their doorpost in the blood of the lamb. And the Pharaoh, after this great sign and miracle of God, released Israel. So that every year after that, Israel's identity was shaped by that event in such a way that the Jews had a feast where they ate unleavened bread with bitter herbs and the Passover lamb to remind them of how God's judgment passed over them for the blood of this lamb. Now why did they do that year after year? Why was it that you would just continue to repeat the same thing day after day? Maybe you're thinking that if we were just consistent about things, they would lose their meaning. And yet we come every week on Sunday to worship God, most of us. So, Why? Why continue to do this? It was so that they would not forget. They they didn't want to forget who they were as God's redeemed people raised up to display His glory to the nations. He said, don't forget who you are. And so this last supper that Jesus was celebrating with His disciples before He went to the cross was actually the last supper of Passover in which Christ was about to fulfill all that it pointed towards. See, Passover was pointing towards Christ, who would ultimately be the Lamb of God, who would die for us, saving a people to Himself as our great Passover Lamb. 
So Hebrews 9.26 says this about what Christ accomplished. This is what he accomplished at the cross. It says that he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Once for all. See, Jesus died as a perfect sacrifice for the penalty of our sins to absorb the just wrath of God on our behalf for all of those who truly put their faith in Christ. And we're told in Hebrews 10 that once he did that, he sat, the, he sat down. Now, he sat down language uh, in the Bible is equivalent to you know, a contemporary sort of urban context. He dropped the mic. He was done. He said, like, that's how you do it. There's no, there's no need for more sacrifices. The sacrifice that you've been waiting for has arrived. Now, rejoice. That's exactly what Christ did at the cross. Passover has been fulfilled in Christ. See, just as old covenant people of God covered their doorpost in the blood of the Lamb, the new covenant people of God cover their doorpost, the doorpost of their hearts in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And the Passover meal for the new covenant people is the Lord's Supper or communion or the Eucharist, which is taken in the gathered local church. And see, Paul is applying here Jesus' words to the local church in Corinth and reminds them of the gospel to show them that their communal cognitive dissonance is, is showing that they have a problem between what they think and know about God as being true in the gospel and the way that they are living out their lives in division. He says, these are not matching up with the gospel. And that reveals inconsistency between the gospel message and their lives. See, communion reminds of Jesus who led our greater exodus out of bondage to sin, death, and the devil, as well as the just judgment of God into adoption. See, all that stuff, like that's what He rescued us from, but what He rescued us to is adoption, that we might become sons and daughters of the living God. We become the new covenant people of God, sealed for eternal life by the Holy Spirit with God our Father, and Christ as our brother in a new family. Now, I know that there is... Um, as we talk about this thing that we're doing in remembrance of God, in remembrance of Christ, that there are some different ways that people understand this remembrance and what the communion actually is. A number of ways. I don't have time to go through all of them, but I just want to explain uh, a few. One is the, the view of the Catholic Church, which holds to transubstantiation. Now, is that a big word? There is no bigger and all it really means is that they actually believe that communion turns into the literal body and blood of Jesus when it is blessed by the priest. Now here's the problem with that. They believe it's a mystical thing that happens. Here's my problem with that, okay? The problem is that Jesus has already dropped the mic on that, right? Like, we don't continue to sacrifice Jesus time after time when we gather together as believers. Jesus has accomplished atonement for you and me. We don't need him to come back and offer another sacrifice as though that first one was not good enough. He has satisfied God for you and me. And here's what that means for our relationship. It means that we don't have to live day by day thinking like, oh man, I'm not in the favor of God anymore because I sinned again and i got to go do the right thing so that God will love me again. Is that the way that dads treat their kids? You know, my boys, my sons, by God's grace, um, they are still in the house and they haven't wandered from the faith or from me. Like, I praise God for that. I mean, they don't have a driver's license yet, so that helps, but, but I'm grateful for that. But I can assure you of this. I can't imagine a thing that any of my sons would do that ever cost me not to love them. 
And I want you to know that that is exactly the picture that we have of God in the gospel for those who have put their faith in Jesus. We don't need more sacrifice. God has satisfied the wrath of God. You have been adopted into the family, and he is not going to put a UPS return label on you like you do with your Amazon gifts. He loves you as his child. There's another view, and that's Zwingli's view. He fought that view by saying that communion is really just a mere memorial, just a picture, a drama. And he's really fighting back kind of Luther, who he felt like didn't go quite far enough with his view of of communion and what it was and being a little bit more distance between the actual blood and and flesh of Jesus. That was just, he he didn't agree with that. And so he said, it's just mere memorial. Now, I don't know if when he says that, he really meant to say that it's not spiritual and there's not a spiritually unique thing that's happening in communion. There's some, there are many that say that he, he doesn't, like Jeff Bromley and Bruce Ware. They say that he's, he's, he's actually not trying to say that. But that's what he, get, he has the rep for, right? And then the, the next one would be John Calvin's view. Now, he clearly, regardless of what you say, differed from Zwingli. And, and, and this is something that I've just even come more to an understanding of over this week. Um, he, he really understood, came to understood a difference in his understanding first because he said, you know, Christians at that point, they only took it once a year and Zwingli would affirm that. And he said, you shouldn't be just taking it once a year. It looks like they were taking it as often as they met. And the reason they were talking it as often as they met is they understood it to actually believe something that was actually communicating grace to the people of God. And so he said, I don't understand this. And he's not the only one. Chrysostom, all the way back in 400, 300 to 400, was saying, I don't know why people aren't taking communion every week while they're only taking it once a year. See, he argued that unlike Passover, which was taken once a year, the Bible seemed to say the Lord's Supper was taken regularly and even weekly in the early church and fed God's people spiritually. Here's what what Calvin said. He said, the Lord's table should have been spread at least once a week for the assembly of Christians. And the promises declared in it should feed us spiritually. All, like hungry men and women, should flock to such a bounteous repast. Not a great picture of communion. Like, you want to take communion more now, don't you? You should. And later, John Owen added this, of this blessed, intimate communion with Christ and participation of Him in the divine institution of worship. Believers have experienced unto their satisfaction an ineffable joy. That's, that's, we don't even have words to express it. They find Him to be the spiritual food of their souls by which they are nourished unto eternal life by spiritual incorporation with Him. In other words, communion is at least a commemoration, but it seems to be something more spiritually to Christians of the past. They understand that God really is loving them through communion. He is communing with them. And the Gospel continues to nourish us spiritually as does the communion meal that it pictures. See, the the glory of God is evident in the communion table. He is making much of Himself and much of His people. He is reminding us of who we are week by week. We're not waiting a, a year to go by before being reminded of who we are week in and week out. Now, Calvin lost the debate over whether or not to take it weekly. Most churches like went for monthly or quarterly. But the point is, is that we need to be taking it regularly to be reminded of who we are in Christ. But there's a third thing that we see here. See, Calvin followed Paul who claimed that there is a physical and maybe even spiritual danger of taking communion in an unworthy manner in verses 27 to 34. Now, I hate to bring out the danger 
Because I, I feel like sometimes the danger might in some, in some ways overshadow the glories of what God is picturing in communion. But I, I believe that, that there really is a danger that we need to highlight and to expose so that we're shepherding well. And so here's what we find in verses 27 to 34. You'll notice here that Paul is actually putting up a kind of yellow caution tape around the communion table. He's kind of fencing it and saying, I just want, I'm not trying to keep you away, but I'm trying to cause you to come with caution. And I want to make sure you're coming rightly. And here's what he says in in verses 27 uh, through 34. Look there with me, 1 Corinthians 27, verses uh, 27 to 34. Here's what he says. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. You see it? Those who commune and the world. Different things. Distinction. Verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. You'll notice something important here. Let me just ask you a question as you're thinking about this. What do you think an unworthy manner is here in verse 27, given the context of this consistent theme of Corinthians who've been divided? And what is the gravity of taking in an unworthy manner? How important is it? See, you'll notice that he says really clearly that taking in an unworthy manner, he says doing so actually charges you guilty for the death of Jesus, for his body and blood. So clearly taking communion as an unbeliever would be an unworthy manner. I think, I think that's, that's obvious. So if you're a non-Christian, we would ask you not to partake of communion, not because you don't want, we don't want you to be part of that with us, but because of what it means. And we would love to talk to you about how you can be part of that communion meal. Uh, We'd love to tell you about the gospel and about God's grace. And if that's you this morning, please talk to me later. I would love to see you at that table in the future. But but here it's clear that at least an unworthy manner would be if you've not put your faith in Christ. But even if you think of yourself as a Christian, but are not, I think it's speaking of that. But notice the context of the whole book of 1 Corinthians is addressing divisions in the gathered church. And Paul has just rebuked some in the local church for at least taking communion selfishly with a kind of blatant disregard for the other members of the community. You know, they they haven't been loving. They, They haven't been kind. They haven't been united with one another. Paul's worried about the poor Christians that the wealthier Christians have been dishonoring and embarrassing and humiliating, whatever that meant. He cares for them. His, his compassion as a pastor kicks in and he says, this can't be so. This doesn't say the truth of the gospel. And their assembly looked more like worldly distinctions and heavenly unity. And that was saying that the gospel doesn't do what the gospel says it does, which is break down those walls of hostility. And so Paul here equips us with two guards against taking unworthily. Now, now notice these two guards he gives us. The first is this. He says, first, examine yourself. 
Examine your life to see if you are living in blatant, unrepentant sin, including at least, bare minimum, how we are living in relationship to the local church that we're committed to. So examine your life. Something that, as we're preparing for communion, you should be doing. Examining my life. There are those that I am treating in an ungodly way that I have not repented of. And do I need to, to go to that person and confess my sin? But there's a second one here. Notice this as well. Oh, let, me, let me add this, because I, I feel like this is important. I don't want to miss this either. When you come to the table and you're thinking, I need to examine my own life, I know that there are some, and I, I sometimes am in this camp, who become overburdened with my sin. And I, I start to ask if there would ever be a kind of day where I'd be allowed to go to that table. Please hear me, we are not talking about perfect obedience when we're talking about self-examination. We are not talking about you searching the depths of your soul and looking for the sin behind the sin that caused the sin that made you think about sin. This is talking about a context where it's blatant, like, clear, unrepentant sin, right? So there, there are all kinds of ways that every time we come to this table, God is sanctifying us and transforming us and renewing us. And this is even part of that process. But if we're coming up and we're like, you know what, my life doesn't look like the gospel, and I've kind of given myself over to that. In fact, I'm kind of taking sin side against God rather than God's side against sin in such a way that I'm just doing this to do it, but it doesn't really mean much to me anymore. It doesn't define my identity or who I am as soon as I walk away. Like This is a time to be reminded of that. But there's a second way that we protect ourselves against taking unworthily. Notice uh, that we are also called to pay careful attention to Christ. We don't just examine ourselves, we examine Christ. Verse 29 says, For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, to discern can mean different things. Here, I think that it means uh, not sort of separating or distinguishing oneself from, but instead to pay careful attention to. So I think that, it, I think that what's happening here is Paul is saying pay careful attention to the body. But what body is it that he wants them to pay careful attention to? Some say it's the local church that you need to pay careful attention to before you take communion. I don't think so. I think in, uh, Tom Schreiner's right when he says that with verses 24 to 27 and what Paul's talking about, the immediate context seems to speak of Jesus' body. You need to, to think about Jesus' body. You need to think about the gospel and whether or not you are rightly thinking about Christ. So don't miss what this means. Because some of these Christians began to take communion without paying close attention to the meaning of Christ's death, they began to live more like the world in everyday life. A world destined not for the mercy of God, but for the judgment of God. Do you see what this means? Like the communion table reminds us that our everyday lives together as an embodied people here at Trinity Bible must be shaped by the death of Jesus in the body. His death for us. And Jesus' bodily death shapes an embodied people. But did you catch the nature of the danger of taking communion unworthily? And this is important, especially if you're trying to shepherd others. What is the danger if you're not taking unworthily? Well, he says that people were actually getting sick and even dying. Now, please don't miss this. Paul isn't inviting a kind of morbid introspection. It's not what he's saying. See, I think that the spiral of communion here should actually work up to joy in Christ rather than down into despair in ourselves. I think that's what God wants us to do. But sometimes we need to go down before we go up. 
right? And realize that we are sinners and then re-recognize and appropriate the grace of God so that we're reminded again of Christ's fresh resources. And communion should shine as a light on blatant, unrepentant sin that we are living in comfortably like a warm blanket. Like the man in 1 Corinthians 5 who was proud of his sin. Uh, Paul, you'll remember, he tells the church there to cast him out of the church and not even to eat with such a one. Think speaking of communion. Why? Because that's a man who took sin's side against God instead of God's side against sin. And it looked even, he looked even more worldly than the world did. His life brought disrepute on Christ and Christ's people and their evangelistic efforts. And the annual Passover meal outlined God's visible covenant people. And the regular observance of the Lord's Supper outlines the borders of God's new covenant people who have been united to Christ and His body and have been born again by the Holy Spirit. So please hear me. I think this is important. I want to say it again. Baptism, it does not save you. But you are baptized into the name of your triune God publicly as an expression of your faith. That's the initiation into Christianity that Jesus calls for in Matthew 28 that He calls us to throughout the Bible. So true believers will obey Jesus' command to be baptized when they're asked to. If you show people that Jesus said to do this and they need to do this, they'll be baptized. That's what Christians do. And I would say that's not legalism. See, obedience is never legalism. If someone calls obedience legalism, they are not speaking with the Spirit of Christ. Legalism is saying that you must do something in addition to biblical faith to be saved. But don't miss this. We need to think carefully about what's going on here. See, many have defined faith in our culture in an unbiblical way that is alien to the Bible. Claiming things like, repentance isn't necessary or that I can live however I want and still be a Christian and feel super safe and secure if I go to meet Jesus. So not defining what the Bible clearly says may be tolerant, something our our culture appreciates, but it's not loving according to the Bible and it could put people's lives in danger both here and in the life to come. See, baptism, it's the doorway into the church Sort of like an initiatory profession. But communion, it doesn't save you either, right? So just like baptism doesn't save you, communion doesn't save us. Communion is a meal for believers whom the church assumes are baptized in 1 Corinthians 12. So if you go on to read in 1 Corinthians 12, he talks about the fact that they all have had one baptism. Into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he's assuming that they've all been baptized. And it describes how everyone that he's talking about have been united by baptism into one body. So not taking communion does not make you not a Christian. Communing together pictures positively the relationship with Christ and His people. But notice here that this has implications for the local church. One, as I've already said, it's not just about you and Jesus when you come to the table of Christ. It's about you and the people of Christ and Christ Himself. But here's the more important point pastorally, though, that I just want to sort of make the congregation aware of to help you love your pastors more as they think through these things. Do you think that taking communion in an unworthy manner is still dangerous physically and spiritually today? Or do you think that this was just like a weird thing that existed when Paul was living during the Bible times? I think that's really a question that we need to ask about the way we view the Bible itself. If the Bible still comes with the same kind of authority 
And the Bible still says that these things that were true then are still happening today, then that means that we might need to think more critically about some of the things that we're doing. Do you think that pastors will be held accountable for how the church practices communion and protects people against taking it in an unworthy manner? I do. And if so, how can we both promote the spiritual nourishment of the table while protecting others from taking it in a dangerous way? That's the tension that I think the church is constantly fighting through. Well, following nearly every church in the first 1950 years of the church, by cautioning people to be baptized before taking communion protects our people. Now, here's here's what I mean. If you're going to be baptized, you have to talk to a pastor. And if you talk to a pastor, you have to talk to him about why you think you're a Christian. And so that's super helpful. It's been super helpful throughout the years for a number of people who imagine themselves to be Christians but were not. So I had a Mormon friend who came to meet with me about church membership and getting baptized. And in that meeting, he came to understand that the gospel isn't simply trying to live a good life and hoping that I have more positive credits than debits on the last day. It helps me explain to my Indian friend why he can't simply believe in Jesus and Krishna and find favor in God. It helps me talk to my atheist friend about how we're not just a society of people to feed the poor and do good works, that we actually have a Savior that is Lord of our lives. It helps uh, to say that folks need to be in fellowship with a like-minded evangelical church as well, not just they need to be baptized, and here's why. See, saying folks need to be in fellowship with the like-minded evangelical church might not be perfect, but it at least lets our postmodern friends know that true faith means that you're not determining what a Christian is by yourself apart from God's shepherds. And it means that they can't simply think of themselves as a Christian if they've been baptized in the past, even though they are happily living in a lifestyle of blatant, unrepentant sin, sexual or otherwise. And as a pastor in a church, we will be held for accountable for the way that we administrate our ordinances. And that's why we need to encourage baptized believers and invite members of other like-minded churches to join with us. Because we understand that they too are here for a moment and a season to partake of this with us, but they are going back to a community that they are committed to to live out the Christian life. So in conclusion, what does communion mean that we're about to take part in? And this is the yellow tape for today, this message. But consider all the ways that communion is calling you to look as you're about to partake in this meal. It's causing you to look at all kinds of things. We've seen that it calls us to look back to the cross where Jesus saved us. We look up to God for present grace, trusting that He will finish the good work that He began in us. It causes us to look all around at our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we've covenanted together with in membership to live out the one another's of the Bible until Jesus comes. We look inward and to confess at unconfessed sin that we need to repent of. And we finally look forward. Forward to that good and glorious day when faith will become sight when Jesus returns to set all things right. That's what we do at the table that we're about to partake of. Let me pray for us. And as I do, I'm going to invite all those who are helping to distribute communion to come down. Let me pray.